Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Good Thursday morning to you, Mike McNamara, in for a Thursday edition of Almerin Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, the Mensa Brothers are going to join me here shortly, and from them you will hear uh, a, a discussion about Colin Powell and his legacy. Um, the son of immigrants rises to become the Secretary of State. Right. After being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so Colin Powell. Wow, right? And then um, after that, uh, you'll hear a discussion about the the preliminary reporting on the investigation of the Bonham-Richard fire and response to that fire uh, done by the United States Navy. So we'll talk about that as well. So I'm not saying I'm in a a great hurry today, but... uh, I will not dally here. So um, without further ado, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you.
and this is dedicated to um, something you're going to hear about in the, the Mensa Brothers segment, but this is dedicated to the memory of the sailors of the USS Forrestal, who when their ship caught on fire, right, 134 of them perished fighting that fire. And if you want to go online, um, watch the videos of their heroic fight to save their ship and their shipmates. And um, this is dedicated to them, their courage, their selflessness, though all these years later, right, we remember them as heroes and what they did. And I would encourage you, go uh, Forrestal, USS Forrestal Fire Vietnam, okay, and then click on images and then click on videos. And just spend about five minutes with that. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win.
All right, time for us to check the weather. Somebody just said, hey, Mac, it's October, not November. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's confusing. Uh, currently in Quantico, it is partly sunny in 62 down the coast. And Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, it is sunny in 71. 29 Palms, sunny in 57. Pendleton, sunny in 58. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy 70. Okinawa, dark cloudy 71. The Philippines, dark cloudy in 80. <clears throat> and further into the southern hemisphere, Darwin, dark cloudy 83. Currently it is foggy in 55 here at the corporate headquarters and the location of Studio One in the Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California. Looking for a high of 70 today. 68 tomorrow, 68 on Saturday, 70 on Sunday, 66 on Monday with an 80% chance of rain. Yeah, that is a uh, that is a look at your weather here. The um, let me uh, I'll do some quick news headlines, and then you'll hear the uh, you'll hear the Mensa brothers in all their um, in all their glory as they will. Uh, they will join the program. Yeah. So fired up about that in case you don't know. So without further ado, uh, in Stars and Stripes this morning, the top headline is, I haven't even seen it yet, Air Force offers former spouse, former Army spouse, $50,000 settlement after Tao left inside her during a seek section causes years of pain. Fifty thousand, that's what you got for me? Huh. Interesting. Interesting. I don't want to say I'm a money grubber, but that's all you got for me is fifty thousand dollars. And you left a towel inside of me? Hmm. Interesting. I think I might see you. Oh, can I not? I, I don't think I can take them to court, can I? Eight years after a surgeon at Yokota Air Base left a laparotomy scowl, lapro, laparotomy towel inside Angie Perry's abdomen, the Air Force has offered to settle her medical malpractice claim for $50,000. Huh. Here's another headline from Stars and Stripes. Air Force and Space Force strength garner lows, low marks while Marines make strides, according to a report. Strength? What are they talking about? The Air Force and the newly established Space Force, both the, under the Department of the Air Force, were graded as weak in an annual assessment of military power that found both services to be under-equipped to carry out the full spectrum of their respective missions. The assessments contained in the Conservative Heritage Foundation's 2022 Index on Military Strength examine the capability, capacity, and readiness of each service and whether they would be up to the task of fighting two major conflicts simultaneously. Quote, these three areas of assessment, capability, 
capacity and readiness are central to the overarching questions of whether the U.S. has sufficient quantity of appropriately modern military power and whether military units are capable to conduct military operations on demand effectively, the Washington-based think tank said in a statement on Wednesday. The Heritage Index rates the services on a five-category scale that ranges from very strong to very weak. Heritage emphasized that the scores do not reflect the U.S. military's strength relative to other militaries. Rather, this is quoting from the report, they are an assessment of the institutional, programmatic, and material health or viability of America's hard military power, Heritage says. For the Air Force, a score of weak was a downgrade from its marginal rating in Heritage's assessment last year. Yikes. While the Air Force possesses 86% of the combat aircraft recommended by the index, the mission readiness and physical location of the aircraft would make it difficult for the Air Force to respond rapidly in a crisis. Also, the need to pull aircraft from all locations for a single major fight would prevent them from joining a simultaneous major battle elsewhere. While Heritage said the Air Force modernization programs are generally healthy, old planes are being retired faster than they are getting replaced, a pilot shortage and reduced flying hours also factored into the Air Force's lower score. Meanwhile, the Space Force was assessed by Heritage for the first time and received four marks. The service does not have enough assets to track and manage the explosive growth in commercial and competitor country space systems being or being placed into orbit. Heritage says in its 608-page report, also the force has outdated equipment and lacks defensive and offensive counter space capabilities, according to the report. That's not good. Like, I'm not a space guy. I just play one on the radio, but that's not good. The um, There was no change to Heritage assessment of the Army, which was again graded as moderate. The Navy was again graded as marginal, trending towards weak, because it desperately needs a larger fleet to meet its mission requirements. The Marine Corps, meanwhile, was bumped up from moderate to strong, due in part to its extraordinary efforts to modernize and its enhanced combat readiness, according to Heritage. The core strides came at the expense of building capacity. Better to have a combat-relevant force, even if it's small, than a large force that is ill-suited for war, the report says. Here, here. How about that? Who cares if it's true or not? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter how good you are. Just be better than whoever the hell you're standing next to. So congratulations to the Marine Corps. Huh. You. Um, let's see. That's all. That's all I'll give you from uh, Stars and Stripes. And Stars and Stripes is kind of a general barometer of defense headlines. Uh, from the Wall Street Journal, Facebook is rebuked by Oversight Board over its own transparency. The board said, this is Facebook's own Oversight Board. The board said the company hadn't been forthcoming about how it exempts high-profile users from its rules, and that it is drafting recommendations for how to overhaul the system 
following a Wall Street Journal investigation and a whistleblower who testified in front of Congress. Yeah. So that's in the Wall Street Journal. From the New York Times, which I had to subscribe to to read something, and so I'm including its headlines as long as my digital subscription is in place. Uh, top headline, 30-year campaign to control drug prices faces yet another failure. Right? Next. In U.S. Naval Institute news, top story is report on laser, on Navy laser railgun and gun launch projectiles. Next headline, Annapolis couple pleads not guilty to selling sub-secrets. FBI cannot find $100,000 in payments. Next story, panel PACS, P-A-C-T-S, like OCUS agreement, quad are key to countering China in the Pacific. Article about, um, article about uh, countering China and the importance of the quad, which is Australia, India, the United States, and Japan, which certainly gets uh, the attention of China. The most remarkable thing about the agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, AUKUS as it's known, to share advanced technologies involving nuclear propulsion for submarines is Canberra's commitment to be an adversarial role with China, a former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs said on Wednesday. How about that? Using the words adversarial. Yeah. So, again, I think the world is coming to grips with what uh, is going on in the Pacific. Story, um, trio of littoral combat ships operating all over the Western Pacific, training with Marines. How about that? Uh oh. The command investigation got released yesterday into the Bon Armor Shard. Yeah, that's on USNI News. I will put that in this hour. So you'll if you want to take a look at that. Um, you'll have a place where you can find that. So I'll put that on the read board, and I'll have a link in, in this hour. Um, top story uh, today in uh, Marine Corps Times, how the family of an interpreter turned U.S. Marine escaped Afghanistan. That's the top story. The Bonham Richard story is at the top of the page. And then more stories about... Um, I'm hearing myself someplace. And I don't know why. 
that's not good. Like, where the hell am I talking? Or why am I saying something? And why, 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 what the hell is going on? The, um, yeah, that's not good. Um, another article, Marines clarified combat evaluation orders in aftermath of deadly AV sinking. Combat evaluation orders. What is that? The Marine Corps has introduced interim policy changes to clarify the need for evaluations before small units join Marine expeditionary units. The change comes after the July 2020 sinking of an AV. Three administrative messages published on October 8th announced changes to three different Marine Corps orders explicitly stating that all units preparing to deploy must go through combat evaluation within six months of the deployment. Quote, when enacted, these recommendations will help assure that another tragedy such as this did not occur. It's my belief that they'll reinforce that the victims of this tragedy will not have died in vain. The previous policies all required all units to perform a Marine Corps combat evaluation or a McCree before any deployment. The AV platoon had not been evaluated before it set out on July 30th, 2020. So we'll take a look at that. But that is in the news. Top stories in early bird. And then the Mensa brothers will join me here. Uh, are as follow today. One, 36 officials, including five admirals, face potential discipline over the Bonhomme Richard fire. Two, escape from Kabul inside the volunteer effort by U.S. troops to rescue their families from Afghanistan. Three, Lawmaker asked Pentagon watchdog to examine military probe into paratroopers' killing. Number four. Attack hits Syria base that houses U.S. troops. No U.S. injuries. A military outpost in southern Syria was hit by a coordinated attack on Wednesday. But officials said no American troops at the base, were injured. The U.S. official told Military Times that there were a small number of rockets involved in the attack. It is not yet clear who carried out the attack. U.S. and coalition troops are based at the Al-Tamf garrison to train local Syrian opposition forces on patrol to counter Islamic State militants. Now, I know where Al-Tamf is. Yeah. You can't see the edge of the world from Altamp, but it's pretty fucking close, okay? It is in the middle of nothing. So if you're, if you're familiar where Baghdad is, right? And so if you go west from Baghdad, you, you hit Fallujah as you go down the Euphrates River. If you keep going, you hit Ramadi. If you keep going, you hit a city called Al-Qaim Husayba. Okay, then you hit the border, and then right across that border is where the last remnants, yeah, of Al Qaeda in in Iraq died. 
Okay. Now I'm sure they're still reconstituted in there someplace else now, but that's that was their haven right there. Now, if you from from Huseba Al Qaim, you have to turn left, which is south, right? And you have to go down the border in the middle of the fucking desert. And we had border crossings there. Yeah. And that's where they're at. Out towards Jordan. And uh yeah. So that's where this this attack occurred. Um, the fifth story, IG to study how doctors CENTCOM handled TBIs after the 2020 Al-Assad attack. What? More than 100 troops were diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries after the 2020 Iranian missile attack on the Al-Assad airbase. The Pentagon's Inspector General wants to know whether U.S. Central Command, the Defense Health Agency, and the services properly screened personnel and recommended them for medical treatment, according to a project announced on Monday. It's the second project of its kind. The DODIG announced the first version of the project in July 2020. Spokesman Rena Allen confirmed to Military Times on Wednesday. The latest evaluation will... delve deeper into some of the items we learned in the first project. The first project is expected for completion soon. Right? And that was the Iranian attack right, for the killing of General Soleimani. Yeah. Um, overseas operations. North Korea claims latest missile tests didn't target the United States. Got it. There's a podcast called uh, Military Spouse Angle, Why Military Teens Are Not Okay. The Spouse Angle, on the Spouse Angle, this edition of it, two high school seniors who helped lead a study on military teams talk about their experiences and how they are helping other teenagers. How about that? All right. Uh, With all of that said, time for the Mensa brothers to join me now. So uh, without further ado, let me make sure I have everything turned on. Uh, The Mensa brothers join me right now. Joining me now are um, the three uh, incredible intellects, uh, my friends, uh, for a long time, and uh, they're affectionately known as the Mensa Brothers because of their robust intellectual capabilities. Uh, joining me from McAllen, Texas, and this is in no particular order relative to intellectual capability, um, <laughs> other than Jeff's going last because he's been blowed up the most and uh, and <laughs> refers to operations going on at Camp Pendleton as combat operations in Iraq. But anyway, that aside, Tim Lynch joins us from McAllen, Texas. Timmy, how are you? I'm doing fine this morning, Mac. How about yourself? I'm all right. I'm all right. We all got up a little bit earlier for Tim, so he can get closer to his gym schedule. So we're supporting that, right? Cause hey, I appreciate it too. Because we're friends. Joining me, uh, the gambler himself. You might think of him as you think Kenny Rogers is joining us. He is not. But uh, from Greater Kansas City, Will Cosentini. Will, how are you? I'm great, Mac. And let's make sure we get done on time so I can get to my game. Got it, got it, got it. He's also a swimmer. Yeah, we, we should talk Not about today. that. Not today. Not today. That yeah. first jump in the pool, always daunting, yes? Does it ever 
Does it ever get easy? Uh, yeah, and, and I don't know what the deal is because where I go swim is a bunch of old people, and they keep that water cold. I think they're trying to kill some, kill off some of the age <laughs> here. I mean, that's not a fall good fall in Kansas is no time for cold water. Well, I'm sure that the the uh, their customers aren't shy about letting them know because old people talk about shit like that. DJ, the pool is, do you realize it's 67 degrees in there? Well, what are they trying well, to do? There's two <laughs> things about that, though, is that people in Kansas don't complain about stuff. They're really nice. Old people do. Then, Come on. And the second thing is maybe old people here like to jump in to make sure they're alive. I mean, Jeff knows about <laughs> yes, doing I, it just I to make sure that you're that. alive. So Yes. Yeah. Hold on. Absolutely. Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you to, before you start running your suck. And joining okay. us from uh, Southern California is Jeff Kenny himself. Jeff, how are you? Good. I appreciate the snide comments about the uh, <laughs> about my fupa with uh, Camp Health and, and first well, we were, we were just talking. Friends. We were just talking about operations in Iraq, and he said, yeah. "Steel night, iron fist." He said he's trying to. He's looking, searching his the roll of the <laughs> steel curtains. What it was? They always have these overly it had dramatic. <laughs> Dramatic names for things are usually, you know, not conclusive. So, uh, you know, but anyway, yes. And I I can confirm, Will, whenever I'm going to p- dive in a pool, I say, is this, could this be it? Could this be the trigger that gives me this joke that a lot of people think, some of them were related to me, that I so richly deserve, you know? So I do, I do it. I do, uh, I'm Catholic. I cross myself, you know, mentally and dive in. And then when I'm not dead, when I, when my head breaks the surface, I'm, it's a good day. Do you stick your toe in the water? Do you kick the water? Do no, you do that, anything? If no one's watching, I will, but no, <laughs> someone's always watching. So I don't, I just, you know, figuratively do it. So. so after all these years, you're still trying not to be a pussy. I'm, or at least hide hide any sign of uh, of being trepidatious about anything. Yeah, look at him. The things that hey, the he doesn't things... know when he's beaten. He doesn't know when he's winning either. He has no sense of perception whatsoever. Yeah, the things <laughs> right that drive your life right for me. One, I'm not a pussy. A life committed to yeah. trying to prove that I'm not a pussy, which ultimately means what. I'm probably, you believe you are. <laughs> I believe I am. Yeah. A whole life spent. Oh, my God. Anyway, I um, wanted to talk about, uh, obviously, the passing of Colin Powell um, and, uh, and his legacy. And uh, and then also about the Bonhomme Richard, um, th- that news this week. And, uh, and, and, and so and before we talk about, uh, and let me just say this, framing the Bonhomme Richard, um, uh, uh, Will, I had Will on yesterday. We were talking about it, and then I remembered last night I forgot to put it up on the website, so that was awesome. But I'll do that shortly. Um, but to see to overreact to the Bonhomme Richard, which seems to be um, something that sounds absurd, I think is to miss the point. Um, the Bonhomme Richard is another horrible incident in a horrible um in a horrible i don't know what the next word is in a horrible era for the american navy the question is right if you focus on the bonhomme richard and don't focus on the american navy who is going to fix that how does that get back to anything 
that we look at as say and say is capable of taking on the Chinese Navy. Okay, and and that is where I hope that people, when when you look at this investigation, that should be question number one. Okay, is that where? How do we get the Navy back to, uh, you know, iron men and women on iron ships, right? That are able to go in harm's way and do the bidding of the nation against a formidable foe. How do we get there? Because we sure as hell aren't there, and it seems to be getting worse. And if you don't see that in the BHR investigation, piled on to the Somerset, piled on to Fat Leonard, piled on to McCain, piled on to Fitzgerald, if you don't see all of that, then you're not seeing the reality of, of the situation and truly how bad it is. And, and so, anyway, we'll have that discussion, too. But first to Colin Powell. Um, um, I think he's, uh, by any measure, he's a great American, right? The son of immigrants, um, grows up in, in the Bronx, goes to City College of New York, uh, commissioned an officer in the United States Army, and then rises to become the Secretary of State. Um, truth be told, probably could have been elected President of the United States. And his wife said... Uh, yeah, I'd rather you not do that. And he had the good grace and the good sense not to jump into that quagmire that is American politics. Um, but his life is not without controversy. And I think that, that Colin Powell's greatness um, is not in any way shaped diminished by his failures. They are footnotes, uh, but they show you his, uh, his loyalties, sometimes maybe to a fault. And I think it's all part of it because, uh, you know, the, the requirement is not to be perfect. The requirement is to be hopefully a person of character and a ho hopefully a person that writes a story with your life that people point to and say, you know what, he was a he was a a good man. He was an honorable man, and he tried as as hard as he could in everything that he attempted. And so, kind of with that backdrop, I I, I I I'd be curious about what you guys have to say about Colin Powell, and we'll and and I want to talk specifically. Uh, we'll talk generally at first, <clears throat> and then we'll go around and we'll talk about uh, Me Lai. He was involved in that. And we'll also talk about um, the intelligence that led to the Iraq war, and he was involved in that. So, uh, Timmy, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure. The uh, I, I think the most important thing to understand about Colin Powell is his rise in the military came at a time when there was legitimate um, discrimination officially by law in the United States, which makes uh his his rise even that more much more impressive and um i i the the me like uh controversy i think is was undeserved and i know we'll talk about it i've got a personal beef with colin powell i've never been a fan after night after the operation just cause because the 15th mew had departed subic early to avoid a, a a typhoon we had spent a lot of time training up the viet uh the the uh Filipino Marine Brigade, and we left early to avoid a, a typhoon. The brigade went to to Manila and overthrew the government. That was bad, and uh, and so, but we couldn't get back to, to that situation because of the typhoon. But then Just Cause popped up, and we had to go through the typhoon anyway to get off the coast of Panama. And we were screaming out there, only to sit there and never be uh, uh, basically to get written out of the program. And my, my firm conviction at the time, and it remains so, because you can't really disprove this kind of nonsense, 
was they didn't want a repeat of Grenada. They didn't want a repeat of the Marines running amok in Panama like we had in Grenada. And they needed, it turned out, when Liberty City, which was the slums in the, uh, in the capital city of Panama, when they started rioting, they needed trucks. They needed extra guys. They needed, at the very beginning, 81 mortars. They could have saved themselves a SEAL battalion. But they didn't, they didn't use us. We always felt that was out of spite and undeserved. But then again, this could all be in my head, and Colin Powell may never have intended to use us. But if you look at the at the original chain of command, there was a cadiff in there for for the 15th meal, and we got written out. And I always felt bitter about that. Having said that, and no, and agreeing, this is a petty little Marine Corps thing that I'm convinced is true. I don't want I don't want to say the, that because you were you were pretty well into your rant. But that sounds kind of <laughs> sounds kind of petty. We're talking about Colin Powell's legacy, and the first thing that comes up is. Hey, I'm still pissed because we didn't get used in Panama. Oh, we all were pissed, though. I mean, you couldn't, you know, everybody, uh, it, 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 it may be petty, but our firm conviction at the time was they were trying to avoid what happened anyway, because there was a Marine Corps platoon from the security forces with a major and three LADs, and he went around the first day knocking over police stations. I don't use the first military guy to use the then-classified CQB techniques. Flashbangs, MP5 stacks. Everybody had flight suits. I don't think they shot anybody. They they would they would hit these damn pull up in the LAVs, line up on a door, throw in a flashbang. The cops go rolling out the back into the other Marines without any guns. And I think he knocked over like 20 stations. Didn't shoot anybody, which was remarkably proficient performance. But that all got buried by the uh, you know they had to go rescue the. The paratroopers who landed in a mud flat and the tide was coming in and going to drown them. I mean, it was just a goddamn nightmare. Oh, and we were bitter. bitter. Yeah. Uh, they may have. I, but I, they, they, I may well have that story wrong because I talked. Is that right? Because I, I, I remember talking to the guy, the major that did that. He was at SOTG when I took, when I took over from. Uh, I don't want to say we're going thing. down a rabbit hole that we might. Yeah. Okay. Not, okay. But I, would, I, will defer, I will defer the critical portion of uh, of the professional criticism me life for my esteemed colleagues who have read the same thing I have and I think take it the same way. I just had to get my bitch out about fucking Panama. Goddamn heartbreak. Heartbreak. Are you going to say anything about Colin Powell else? Is that? Yeah, no, I, I would say I, I would say other, other than that, his rise was remarkable. I think he transcended whatever... I mean, people always the first African American. This first, I, I think he transcended that by his, by by him earning the right to be at the very top echelons. Nobody ever looked at Colin Powell and said, "Yeah, it's probably because he's African American." Nobody ever said that about him. It was before that kind of thing was even thought about. So I I think he's a true American hero because he represents the American we believed in which is you overcome the odds, even if you live in a democratic South where racism was legal at the time. And he still overcame those odds. That's remarkable. And New York wasn't exactly a, a liberal's paradise in the 1950s either. Although I believe the African-American community there did a hell of a lot better back then than it's doing now. A hell of a lot better. But that's neither here nor there. Got it. All right. William, thoughts on Colin Powell generally? Uh yeah, I, you know, and it's, it's funny. Tim refers to him African American. The guy's a Jamaican, right? His parents are Jamaican. To be clear, that's that's right. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I think calling call, calling Colin Powell the first black anything is an insult, right? Uh, where he came from and how he got there, 
uh, had to be through merit. And the idea that he was the G3 of America in Vietnam as a major. I, it's a full bird billet. Biggest division in the U.S. Army, and he's the G3. I would take some exception to you that he avoided the political platform. Powell was very much known as a Washington insider. Um, and and uh, again, I I don't I never put him on a pedestal. I think it's a, it's a phenomenal story, but I think the guy also had flaws. Uh, and I give you two of them that are pure political stuff. Describe. Colin Powell's politics. I think that you would call him a social moderate, a national security guy, a pro-American guy. And who did he vote for in 2008? Two candidates. The two candidates are John McCain and Barack Obama. I think you could easily describe John McCain as a social, moderate, national security, pro-America guy. I think you'd stretch it to call Barack Obama that. Uh, hold on. I, well, well I, I thought he voted for McCain in 2008 and Obama in the second election. I don't think so. Okay. No, he endorsed, he endorsed uh, Obama in 2008. Yeah. Which, which is more, a guy like him carries weight when he endorses someone. Yeah. And so that one, that one troubled me because again, I don't. I think calling Colin Powell the first black anything is an insult to the guy, right? Uh, and then you know the second thing is the whole, um, the whole saga of Scooter Libby, and uh, uh, it, you know we won't get into all the details, but basically Libby got quasi-entrapped by the FBI over a week. Oh, yeah. And Powell's deputy at state, Armitage, is the one that was the leaker. Right. Knew it, and I believe Powell knew that. And so that one's always sort of bothered me about him, that they let this guy hang. In particular, because Libby was Dick Cheney's guy, and Cheney was a sec def when, when Powell became the chairman. And they seemed to have a really good working relationship <clears throat> and that they they were professional colleagues that had the civ mill relationship right so those things bother me about Powell um, you know I just I and and I would say and I think that Powell you know some of the things that he did that aren't aren't well known at the State Department um, he, he tried to bring in professional military education. You know, contrary to the, to the uniform military, where we bring somebody in, we do education, we do training, we give them a challenge. If they do well, they get promoted. Then we do education, then we do training, then we give them a challenge, they get promoted. The State Department isn't that way. They bring them in, they orient them, and then they go send them off to do weird things in foreign countries. And they just continue to promote people. And he thought that, State Department, professional State Department staffers deserve professional education. I thought, you know, 200 and something years in, and we're finally figuring something out in the State Department. And Colin Powell is a guy that did that. I mean, I give the guy a lot of credit for being an unbelievably capable uh, officer in particular. Um, some of the political stuff, not so much. Got it. Jeff, uh, general thoughts on Colin Powell? 
Yeah, I think uh, that uh, he's and again, I got to kind of join Will disagree with Tim a little bit. Uh, he is the flag of the meritocracy. You know, I mean, he represents, you know, how a guy who uh, does well gets promoted and does well in, in regards to, you know, his uh, his judgment. Status. You know, he doesn't have certainly no command time of note in uh, real world ops during combat operations. So. He knows the guy who gives good advice, and uh, and and he he he's skillful in his whole career. Particularly, though, I think when he started, uh, you know, as a White House fellow, and all the way up through when working for President Reagan and, and you know chairman during uh, President H. W. Bush's time, he's the type of guy I see that sweet spot between what military uh, proposed military operation uh, should. You know what, what course of action they should generally take. That sweet spot, and then the other factor being what will fly. What will fly in the uh, up there in Congress? He's the first truly appropriate general officer that of note, where people would admire George Patton for things, but you know, being an appropriate guy is not one of them. Even even admired General Marshall. No one would say General Marshall was appropriate. General Marshall was inspired. You know, he he did. Uh, things that are out of the box sometimes, particularly in regards to selecting commanding generals for the Second World War, you know, people might could have questioned with. But he never, he never took that into account. He just did what he thought was right to prosecute operations. Whereas I think Colin Powell, he's just knows when to keep his mouth shut. He knows when to weigh in. He never weighs in too vehemently, you know. And uh, and so he's like the model for the type of guy we got up there now, where it's it doesn't matter, you know, what kind of knowledge or experience you have as long as you say the right things at the right times and more importantly don't say some things at the right times and so that other stuff that will brought up that upsets me too because you know i didn't really know that in that detail but i remember that stuff about scooter libby and that guy was done dirty and and the people who should have been watching out for him you know kind of like acquiesced and uh and one of them's colin powell and so you know I, uh, I have a problem with that I have to tell you, though, overall, he would have been a good president in 1996. I think he would have beaten Bill Clinton. And I think, you know, the moves that he might have made, uh, he's kind of like Eisenhower, you know, in, the, in that way. If he had become president then, he would have been uh, he would have been judicious in some of the stuff he did. And uh, if we did get attacked on 9-11, you know, he was uh, then he would be on his second term if he chose to run again. Uh, I think. Um, you know, things would have gone better. So that's that's kind of like a nuanced and kind of contradictory uh, view on the guy, but that's how I look at him. Overall, though, I admire him. Yeah. Still agree with a lot of his stuff. Yeah, you know, to me, when you look at his life, um, you know, and and we all sit here today as people that have been and made you know mistakes in our lives, right? I mean, I was NJP'd as an officer by the current commandant of the Marine Corps. Right for the inappropriate handling of classified material, and so I don't, you know, but in the long arc of your life, how should you be judged? Right by the body of the work that you do, you know, your, you know, and and by your life's work. And, and Colin Powell, by any stretch, um, you know, is not perfect, and that's what I think makes him, you know, um, and I hate to use the word great American because it's so overused, but uh, I think really uh, somebody 
whose behavior is worth modeling, right? I mean, and, and I will tell you this. I think very early in his career, he is seen by political figures, right, like, by, like Dick Cheney, um, and he he's you know he's brought to the White House right he's he's at the upper echelons of and he's tagged as a as a as a bright bright guy uh, and again being black certainly did not hurt him in in those in, in those circles right and so um, <clears throat> but again I, I would say to lay his success on on that is is not um, is not fair to him um, and and then but I don't think Jeff um, he would have you know, in terms of political office, he was n- not lobbied to do that until 2008 when both parties wanted him to be the can- their candidates after he was done as Secretary of State. So 1996, I, then, yeah, 1996 might have been a little bit too early. Yeah, I think that's the one where his wife said, please don't. But right, uh, again, right, I could right. be wrong. You know? Yeah, and so, and, uh, and, and I heard somebody say he didn't have the, uh, he didn't have the, they said something like the the heart, you know, he didn't have the heart for politics. And, and my response was, no, he didn't have the stomach for it. He'd seen he, that. He didn't have the fire yeah. in the belly is how they describe politicians. Yeah, so. I think that's being generous to them. I mean, she, she had yeah. been around it and he had been around it and seen the cutthroat world that that is. And they they'd lived in that world. He'd lived in that world since Desert Storm. Of, of visibility at the highest level. And I think she quite rightly did him a favor and said, yeah, I think you've done enough for this country and, uh, and, and we need to do something else. I want to talk about Milai. Um, Colin Powell goes to be, at the time of, of, of what we're going to talk about happened, there's a letter written to General Creighton Abrams, Abrams. Now, what's interesting about this is that this letter's written it never mentions Milai. It never uh, mentions Pinkville, which is the way Milai is initially described. Right? The letter sent to um, the head, um, the commanding general of, you know, of MACV in Saigon, and then it gets forwarded to um, the Americal Division. It gets sent down to the G3. He'd be like the G3 Alpha. And so what you what you read in terms of um the criticism of Colin Powell in 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 his look at this again he's looking at the entire division's battle space it doesn't it doesn't name Milai or Pinkville it's a it's a general it's a letter about and I'll just read you the first sentence uh, and this is a guy by the name of Tom Glenn, 21-year-old soldier with the 11th Light Infantry Brigade, wrote a letter to General Abrams, and the first sentence is this. It would indeed be terrible to find it necessary to believe that an American soldier that harbors such racial intolerance and disregard for justice and human feeling is a prototype of all American national character, yet the frequency of such soldiers lends credulity to such beliefs. Now, that's a pretty impressive little sentence for a 21-year-old soldier. Um, so that, that letter then gets given to him. And the criticism of, of Colin Powell at the time is that he does whatever examination he does of events, and he writes, in direct refutation of this portrayal is the fact that relations between American Division soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. 
In an army, in a 2018 U.S. Army case study of the My Lai massacre, noted that Powell quote investigated the allegations described in the Glenn letter. He proved unable to uncover either widespread unnecessary killings, war crimes, or any other facts related to My Lai. Powell's handling of the assignment was later characterized by some observers as whitewashing the atrocities of My Lai. In 2004, Larry King interviews him and asks him about the events around My Lai that he was involved in. And he says, quote, I mean, I was in a unit that was responsible for My Lai. I got there after My Lai happened. So in war, those sorts of horrible things happen every now and again, but they are still to be deplored. So he really doesn't answer the question. So anyway, I, I just the, the footnotes of this are important as you look at it because He's the G3 responsible for the entire AmeriCal battle space. As the G3, as the, as the assistant G3, he would be in touch on a daily basis with the subordinate unit G3s and the assistant operation officers of those brigades. How would he go about collecting this information among the other 30 things he has to do that day? He would talk to them. Maybe talk to the people, maybe their civil affairs guys, maybe their advisors down there to say, hey, can you tell me about the atmospherics? How prevalent is this stuff? We know some of it happens. So I want to get your your thoughts. Jeff, you, you, you've been an advisor. Um, let's start with you. Um, your thoughts on on the, the me lie footnote on Colin Powell's career. Yeah, I think to try and tar. Colin Powell with a meal eye brush is uh, far fetched because he's, uh, you know, he got, like he said, he got there afterwards and uh, he heard this. That's a very general complaint that that soldier got that he that ended up in his hands. Um, and that soldier, by the way, sounds like a guy who like drank beer. So he, he flunked out of college and he got drafted. <laughs> like he, he had a pretty, he's pretty eloquent, you know, right. his little writing, but he's very general. So, uh, you know, every, Every officer who has something like that, come, he wants specifics, you know, and then he bounces those specific charges against combat reportage from that time period. And he tries to see if there's a, any there there, whereas this wasn't even that. It's just a general like, you know, uh, accusation against the character of that division and a, and a very, you know, um, and a very, con- you know, uh, uh, conflict plague time. I don't mean conflict just between us and the North Vietnamese. I mean, conflict within uh, within America itself between, you know, the, the, the different political parties, the, uh, the the people, you know, who protested against the war, the people who were for the war is very contentious. And, uh, you know, that type of thing is used by people who don't agree with the way the war is going or that we should be there at all. That type of accusation. And, and it was used. You know, let's face it. You know, and, and before that, every every law of war violation that happened in Vietnam was used as a flag of the of the side that wanted to leave. And so he's aware of all that stuff. Colin Powell, you know, running running around looking for trouble is not how a guy like Colin Powell becomes the first black secretary of state, the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's not what you do. And so when he sees there's not a good enough uh, there's not enough evidence there or good you know enough information there for him to, you know, be questioned for not exploit exploring it he's he's safe and just saying hey you know i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna alert people to this but it's so general there's nothing really to investigate and then of course the 
you know, more stuff came out about, you know, Milai, and it turned out there's a huge, uh, you know, law of war violation. I mean, massive, right. you know, relative to most of ours. But again, Jeff, as you yeah. say, as he pings, right, the operations officers and, right. and, 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 and the head of the brigade advisor, you know, right. training group, whatever the hell they had there, and they said, hey, look, you know, yeah, this stuff happens, but look, we have this going on. We're repairing this canal. We're building this village. We're building this bridge. So, yeah, you know, it happens. And so I, I can hear the conversation anyway. Yeah. Got it. And, all, and the combat reports from what happened in Pinkville slash Eli. Yeah, but again, that's not even named. sound like a victory. Right, yeah, right, 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 right. So even if you did have that, it would have been all the, the reports are routinely exaggerated number of enemy military dead and, you know, denigrated any kind of civilian damage we did. Interesting. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Uh, Timmy? Yeah, the the expectation that he is, as the G3, as a major G3, which is just a phenomenal leap in uh, responsibility, um, is going to have the time to take take the time to seriously investigate this personally. That's not an expectation that's reasonable. Jeff's pretty much outlined how that stuff uh, uh, went down. I would only add that, and and my father's talked to you about this, Mac, a few years ago. He went, he was in Pinkville in between the time that Powell was assigned this task and the news broke with the BLT. They came down to do some hammer and anvil thing. He noted that the uh, the relations, he called the, I think they, they described the civilian population as uncooperative and belligerent. I mean, there was no expectation that you were working with those guys. The Marines were kind of appalled by the Army's attitude towards them. But what upset them most was they kept on finding inside these jungle breaks between the villages concrete uh, uh, pillboxes. And he's like, where did they get the fucking concrete from? And it was USAID concrete, which had been carted in and given to the villagers as part of these uh, uh, um, aid program that the, that, that the villagers used to make pillboxes with. That was a, He said it was amazing. But it was clear that within that division, the relationship between the Vietnamese and the Army wasn't that good. Colin Powell had been in Vietnam for a year with the, the South Vietnamese Army in the Asha Valley, where they were replacing, moving villagers out of the way of the fighting and relocating them. So that was what was normal with him. When you're relocating villagers, of course, they're surly and uncooperative. They don't want to be relocated. But I think in his mind, he was doing what his orders were instructed to do. And you get these complaints that are nonspecific. It's like when uh, it's like in the 90s when when there was all these complaints about us putting guns to the head of Marines and take an anthrax shot. That Those kind of rumors, uh, those kind of bitches come up the chain of command all the time. How many other times had he seen bitches from the from up from the chain where it's like, hey, we're not treating these people properly. I would I would probably say he's seen a lot of them, but was unable to detect anything that was a chargeable offense. And and I don't think that anybody else would have either in his position. Got it. Will, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I just find it hard to believe the idea that Colin Powell knew about the massacre and then participated in the cover-up. So I... I you know, I, I've been trying to parse through a little bit of this this morning. And if you want to find it on the Internet, it's there. He's either the greatest war criminal in the history of the world or he is as pure as the white driven snow. So I can't I, I don't know where the source documents are, but in my own head, I think is a. 
again, as a professional officer, obviously that he was and unbelievably capable, obvious that he was, had he known about it, I think it would have been reported. And I might add that the old man was working that same village complex area six months later and heard nothing about it. Nothing. And I think they were there for about three weeks. So for what that's worth. Right. Yeah. I, to me, the non-specific, and even as Jeff said, um, and even if he hears about it, if he pulls the reporting, what he's going to hear from the assistant division commander is, yeah, I looked into that. These were the allegations. This is what I found. That's the official Army report. And so is there is no me lie yet. There is no Pinkville other than that incident. And, and that's accounted for to him. So to me, to, to tar him with that um, is, is unfair. And, and in my opinion, ignorant. Because it, as you look at the footnotes to it, right, um, you know, what— even if he would have looked at it, what he would have pre been presented with uh, by people senior to him. And, you know, the assistant division commander looks into it. It didn't get given to some captain, right, in the legal department or something like that. That's how we took it seriously, you know, right? And this is what we found. Um, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about uh, the war in Iraq and his role in that. Now, um, I think Will made the comment about, I mean, uh, he crosses paths. He's no stranger to the upper, what is it, well, the E-ring of the Pentagon? Yeah, I mean, he was in the E-ring. He was a chairman. Right. Uh, but he's been there for a while, right? I mean, he's his uh, time in the Army and whatnot. They know him. At, at the White House, they know him. I yeah, mean, he's... I mean, he was the deputy, na deputy national security advisor under Reagan. And then I think for a period, he was a national security advisor under Reagan. So, I mean, sure. he swims in the deep end of the pool politically and like guys like Cheney, right, Rumsfeld, he knows them. And so this is these are relationships that go back, you know, uh, a couple decades at least yeah, into the into the 80s, into the 80s. And so this group now uh, is is considering the invasion of Iraq. Uh, Jeff, uh, thoughts on Colin Powell uh, and the lead up to the war in Iraq? Well, I think that uh, because of the experience you just outlined, that uh, he was a little bit more skeptical of the 16 or 18 or however many intelligence agencies who all said, yes, there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He's a little bit more cynical you know, about that than most. But he, he's a, his talent you know, at, at a core level was he's a crisp briefer. He was a very good briefer, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, he. And so he did a good job, you know, laying out the the, uh, the the case for invading Iraq based on purely on the you know weapons of mass destruction thing. And as you pointed out to me in a you know in a uh, another conversation we had, I, he insisted that uh, George Tenet be sitting there in full view right behind him when he made uh, when he made that testimony or you know he, he gave that speech, which I think was at the. A, a joint session of Congress, or it was for the, uh, the UN, the UN, the UN, right? I mean, he made sure that that guy was there, you know, flying his face, that he, so that he basically was saying, "Hey, look, I'm not going to be the only one who uh, who dies on this hill. You guys are going to have to be right there with me." And uh, you know, and he, so I think he uh, he kind of thought, you know, this is a little bit thin. Turned out to be horribly thin, you know, because other people were saying, and this he didn't say. 
one of them a retired Marine officer, hey, there's nothing in there. You know, this guy got rid of that shit. The last time we saw him use weapons of mass destruction was on the Kurds and a little bit on the Shia, you know, in, after the, uh, the after Desert Storm. And so, uh, you know, they, uh, they were determined to go into Iraq. They thought that that was the key to, to success. They being, the, you know, the Bush, the second Bush administration, G.W. Bush. And, uh, and he was being loyal to them, you know? And, uh, and I think that's what that was. Got it. Yeah. You know, he, no doubt about it. Timmy, your thoughts. Hey, Colin Powell's like the, the perfect modern general. He, uh, he's smart. He's articulate. He has his own opinions, but in the, at the end of the day, the attributes that make him the perfect chairman of the joint chiefs worked against him in this case. If he had the high self-regard for Colin Powell, like let's say Barack Obama has for Barack Obama, he may well have put his foot down based solely on, I'm not going to go in history looking like uh, I was carrying water for these two dipshits, because he at that point had to know that the CIA is not your friend. They're not going to tell you stuff that you want to hear, or, or they'll tell you stuff you want to hear, not necessarily stuff they know. They're never held accountable when they're wrong, so who cares? So I, I think that unfortunately, had he been more of an egotistical prick and, and, and more like MacArthur, who was concerned about his name in history, he may have been more inclined to do the right thing for Iraq. But he didn't because he's the perfect modern general. And, and who the hell else is going to do? I wouldn't have done different in his place. I'd like to think I would, I would but I know better than that. You know, he's just human. And he's been, but it's a, it's a shame. He should have gone with his instincts, which should be your instincts anytime CIA tells you something, which is, oh, that's bullshit. Yeah, that's the tenor of the, the population of America then. Like uh, 2003 was pretty much, uh, and I know I was one of them. Me and too. Then, I thought it was a great idea. It resulted in the death of Muslims I was for. <laughs> That's supposed to say watching, that though. After watching those people jump out of those burning buildings, say goodbye to their families on their cell phone, then jump from the 22nd floor or whatever. Then I, you know, until, it wasn't until I became an advisor to the Iraqis that I started changing my views and you know on things but uh you know, intellectually say you can't tar a whole religion with this one brush but i have to tell you um he was preaching to the choir when he made that speech at least if americans were watching it and now things changed you know after the first year or so uh of the war between 2003 and the middle middle or end of 2004 things started changing about that when we started losing people in a big way but uh yeah, before that, he like Timmy said, he's uh, he's preaching to the choir. That's what people wanted to hear for sure. Well, yeah, I I thought uh, at the time um, that that look, you do not want to fight a war of choice, right? That's one of the great lessons from the ancients. Um, but I also believed the intelligence that there was WMD there. Um, I, I believed when people said that. I didn't have any access to any intelligence like that, just to clarify. Um, and when you look at Iraq in Saddam Hussein, you know, he had, was responsible for starting two or three different wars in the Middle East, uh, 
He had shown proclivity to use weapons of mass destruction, as Jeff described. And the idea that he did not have any more, I think I would have laughed off. He, I believe he absolutely did have it. Um, and so uh, while it, it, it definitely was a war of choice, don't forget, it was a war we were actually still fighting. The Gulf War had not ended, and we were still actively fighting in Iraq. Um, and so I, I remember at the time, you know, you, you remember when, you know, we did a big operation in the 90s there and people sort of accused President Clinton of a little bit of wag the dog. Uh, yeah, Gen- General Zinni was. Uh, and Zinni was in charge then. And Desert, Desert Fire or something like that. Yeah, and Desert Fox. Right, right. And so I remember when. General Zinni came to Quantico in the run-up. It was either just before the 2003, you know, march up, or it may have already started at that point. And he was like, he was the guy on the stage that was arguing that we shouldn't do it. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, the conditions are more ripe to do this in 2003 than they were in whatever, 1998. Uh, at a minimum, the conditions are the same. But when he was a CENTCOM commander, he was all for it. And now that he's on the sideline, he's against it. And I just thought that was weird. And I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't know how to how to credit it. And I wasn't sure if he was just arguing against the war of choice, which is just typically not a good strategic move, as we proved once again. Yes. And so, <laughs> you know, Will brings up a good point. He brings up a real good point about uh, Saddam Hussein. And, and he did start those wars, and he was an awful guy, and he did murder his own people. But he wanted Iran and Syria to think he still had weapons of mass destruction because, as he said, after he got captured, to, you know, American guards, he said, hey, look, this is a tough neighborhood. You know, Iran and, and Syria had a lot of good reasons to kick my ass. And them thinking I still had, you know, biological weapons and maybe even nuclear weapons was kind of a mental you know, deterrent to that. So the irony was we used that against them. You know? Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I got a feeling that, that uh, whatever Powell talked to the UN about, he thought was the truth. I don't think he was trying to make something up in his own head. I don't think that he had some great, uh, you know, conviction that we needed to rid the world of Saddam, no matter what. Um, and I think he brought Tenet there, not necessarily so that he was not the only one dying on that hill, but to enhance just the, the credibility that this wasn't Colin Powell, just Colin Powell speaking. This was the weight of U.S. intelligence gathering. Right. Um, and so... I I don't think that he's ever – maybe he has repeated that. I just don't pay attention that much anymore to that stuff. But I think when he talked in front of the U.N., that's exactly what he believed. Um, and so uh, – and, and maybe for different reasons, he didn't need to convince me on that stuff. Yeah. I, 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 I thought it absolutely was true. So – yeah. Let me make a couple points. One is uh, I have to compliment Jeff for recalling that operational name, right? I shit on him. <laughs> I shit on him earlier in the broadcast. 
But he didn't recall it. He recalled half of it. Oh. Half of it. That's me. Like, like That's Colonel pretty good. Steel. That's inside the three ring, okay? Colonel That's Steve. all right. Colonel Steve, Operation Desert. Uh, that's no fucking <laughs> skill. After our operation, the name Desert something. <laughs> the other thing is, Will... Desert the, the other thing is, Will, in some way, shape, or form, sliding General Zinni, okay? Um, <laughs> I refer to Zinni as the burning bush, okay? And so... I think the first thing I read in and and again I think I was just like these guys you know yeah I mean if they have weapons of mass destruction and then an article appeared in I think it was Salon on that website and and I think the headline was what planet are they on right and that's a quote from Zinni and he's talking about Iraq and I remember reading it right Right now, this guy's the burning bush to me, okay? And I'm like, what is this shit? And he's talking about, look, you have the funding to do your top, you know, like six priorities in CENTCOM. This is like ninth or tenth on there, right? So I don't know what planet these guys are living on, blah, 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 in, in, in very zinnious fashion. And that was, and I'm like, uh-oh, if the burning bush is saying this, then this is something that I have to look at seriously, because um, so and I so and I'll give you a couple of data points. Um, I have a friend who's friends with Colin Powell and friends with Zinni in that men of those era that era. And um, he and I are talking on the phone and we're talking about this. And he says, "Yeah, we're not going to war in Iraq." And I said, "How do you know?" He said, "Powell's not going to let it happen." I said, what do you mean? He said, look, he said, look, Vietnam guys, okay? You know, Desert Storm is, 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 was the pinnacle achievement of post-Vietnam American military, right? Clearly defined objective and all those things that go on underneath it, right? <clears throat> this has none of that stuff, and he's not going to allow it. Then it, he allows it, and I call him, and I said, what happened? He said the president leaned on him and said, you're my secretary of state. I need you to do this. He said, and he did it. And so um, I then have a subsequent conversation with another person who's a contemporary. And they said one of Powell's conditions for doing it was that George Tenet had to sit behind him, both in his presentation to Congress, uh, in those congressional hearings that he went to, and also in the presentation at the United States, at the United Nations, that he had to physically be in the shot. And that was his specific requirement of the president. And the president said, got it. And so um, I think much later on, uh, his regret, Colin Powell was, had been a teammate of these guys for a couple decades. And they, and, you know, and they called him in, and they called him to task and said, we need you to do this. And he did it, and, uh, and he regretted it for the rest of his life. So, um, yeah, so interesting, the personalities and of, uh, of American foreign policy. And then at a moment that maybe— you know, uh, if you listen to, you know, what he th things he said later on in life that, that he, you know, he wish he had to do over again. Let's talk about the Bonhomme Richard. Any final comments about Colin Powell? Nonetheless, let me tell you, the son of immigrant parents, right, rises to the highest levels of not only American um, um, national influence, but, you know, as, a sec as the American Secretary of State, a, a world influence, um, an unbelievable life. And I think that his flaws and, and the way he lived with it, his graciousness as a person and a leader, I think is attributable to being the son of a, 
uh, of immigrants and growing up the way he grew up. He never seemed to lose that a whole lot, at least from, you know, outward appearance. Um, but uh, certainly a life worth uh, worth reading about and, and worth taking to, to heart. But any final thoughts, Timmy, final thought? Not not great American, and uh, and, and but you know the new thing you you, you got to you got to hold on to these kind of bitter disappointments, but it doesn't subtract from the overall uh, 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 what what he was and, and what he accomplished. And I I admire men like him. They 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 reinforce the the American story that we grow up with and our identity. I just love seeing guys like him rocket to the top and stay there. Got it. Got it. Jeff, final thought. Yeah, I pretty I concur with your epitaph there, Mac. Got it. Pretty much says it all about him. Will, final thought. Um, yeah, no changes. I, I I would say the one disgrace in modern America now, or continuing disgrace, is how many times have you heard Colin Powell and COVID nineteen? You know, it's so ridiculous, and uh, people are still using that to bludgeon each other. You know, nothing cannot be politicized. So, right. yeah, the um, turn it off, turn it off, just stay away. Uh, let's talk about the Bon Armour Shard. Um, uh, first, uh, general thoughts, Timmy. Well, well, this boy, we didn't see the investigation. All we've been able to deduce is there's 36 people involved in this thing, all of whom are have been found at fault for the loss of the ship. And this includes the entire chain of command. We're talking fire department captains. We're talking about shore facility commanders. It would appear that not one of these people understood what their responsibilities were in regards to uh, um, uh, maintenance of a ship in shore and in general, and this 510 manual specifically, which I pulled up, by the way, to see what this manual said that nobody apparently has any familiarity with. And one of the things it says is that the shore commanders, the the SRCA, SRCA, ship repair and construction activities, are 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 mandated to sign a memorandum of agreement with every ship that outlines their responsibilities for an in part in port in whole fire as in accordance with this regulation, which are very specific about exactly what you'll have to include the PSI in your stinking water mains that got to be uh, a left connected, or excuse me, connected to shore-based water mains. It's very detailed in what you do to fight a fire. Nobody in that chain of command apparently had any uh, passing familiarity with this document, which brings to question what the hell are they paying attention to if not this? And that, that to me is the biggest question of this thing. This was a, this is this is a senseless loss, and I bet you, I bet you there are people that are named in this document who will say, well, at least we didn't lose any lives, as if that's a victory when you've lost an entire ship like that. And I don't know how to square that specific kind of math, but I know it's the wrong math to be looking at as, as a naval organization who is supposed to be serious about shit like this. And that's, that's my opening statement on this debacle. In the yeah. spirit of Will Cosentini correcting my chicken shit mathematical mistakes, okay? The manual is the 8010 manual, Timmy. Thank you, sir. You're, I appreciate the correction. You're See, welcome. nobody knows the manual. I, I pulled it up and still don't even know it. That's what I'm saying. It's one of those manuals. Got it. It's amazing Got it. how well you can train people if you're just persistent. Oh, I'm scarred. Scarred by it, right? Um, Jeffrey, 
um, opening statements on on the BHR? Yeah, to me, the thing that jumps out is, uh, you know, like uh, Napoleon said, there's no bad regiments, only bad colonels, right? So every every um, blunder there, to include, you know, the nonchalance and you know the 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 basically uh, the lack of sense of urgency of the crew and firefighting people is attributed to the commands. And they had several 06 commanders at odds with each other during this thing. You know, all of them, though, deferring to not doing anything. And, and the one man of action that I think you know comes out is the uh, he's a squadron commander who actually tried to, um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, air uh, helicopter guy who uh, tried to dump you know, water from the ocean on this thing, which might not be the right move, but no one was doing anything, you know, that was, uh, that was curbing that fire. And like Timmy pointed out, it's like the worst time command wise you can have a fire probably in that time between the, the captain of the ship being in control, like when it's at sea or when it's not being repaired and the repair people being in. It's almost like the guy who set the fire knew what he was doing uh, more than just, you know, from an arsonist standpoint, he also knew when to do something because of the confusion. And all the uh, the thing that struck me was all these, like, I mean, the Navy I know, and that, I was on that ship, you know, for about seven or eight months and uh, uh, off and on, you know, and uh, that was a fine ship and it was very tightly run. And uh, <clears throat> it's inconceivable to me that it would go that way. But when you read the investigation, you see the cap, the, the, the guy who's, who's the CO of the ship, he really kind of loses a lot of control when they go into a, a repair mode like that. And so uh, I think, once again, the lack of good judgment and the need to have so many 06 commanders for so many mundane responsibilities. All these guys may be crappy at their jobs, but the one thing they know is, you know, their authority. And so they're bickering about that. And meanwhile, the, the ship burns. And now we have, that was like a fine the LHD. You know what I mean? It was like a... Uh, it was the best amphib I've ever been on. Now, the people who know my history of the amphibs know that I've been on a lot of LSTs and, you know, ships that still had the ore holes in them, I think, you know, uh, like the USS Portland and so forth. But uh, but that was definitely a Class A ship. It was known for it, you know, and uh, and it's just a, a tragedy and a crime that uh, that we lost it. We lost it worse than we – I mean uh, – bigger loss than we ever suffered at the hands of the, the British, the French, or the Japanese. You know? Absolutely. Well, Yeah, after everything we talked about yesterday, the thing that strikes me is how much reading have you done at Pearl Harbor, about Pearl Harbor? You know, a lot. And I, I don't remember reading in there about once it happened, people not taking initiative and going and doing things. And then here we are in this one where the fire burns for two hours before we put any type of retardant on it, whether that be foam, water, uh, <clears throat> anything. And so that's the, the grand strategic issue about our Navy. Um, we're going to stand here and not do anything. Don't give up the ship to eh, a couple hours in the fire burns. 
<laughs> that's my opening salvo, as we would say. <laughs> Got it. Um, as you read, and again, uh, we will, uh, once the investigation um, is out, the unclassified version's out, we will uh, <clears throat> do what we do with those kind of things, which is go through the findings of facts, and we'll have a longer discussion about this. But relative to the articles that you read, Timmy, um, what what are the things that jump out at you about the article? Give me give me one or two things that jump out at you. Um, the, the lack of realization of what a dangerous position they were in, given the amount of flammables, rags, uh, uh, all kinds of crap like that strewn about, along with contractor equipment hooked into the ship's equipment, which nobody was familiar with. We have all, at, at various levels of command, taken over areas, um, whether they be barracks, and, and in my case... Uh, uh, can, I, can, I, can I interrupt you and, and, yeah. and completely blow what you're going to say out of the water? Sure, go ahead. Okay, which is only going to make what you say worse. Okay. They did know. They knew, as somebody who was a part of a ship's company for two years, right, and we, when we would pull into port... Right, we would have a whole list of maintenance projects we're going to be that were going to be done. I would know as the executive officer of the Marine Detachment um, uh, if they were going to be done in proximity to special weapons spaces that may or may not have housed nuclear weapons. Right, I had to be familiar with them. The sergeant of the guard had to know where the disconnects were. They had to know if we had this set condition yoke or zebra, how we would set that. And we were, and we were intimately, we, that was, our job was that ship. And we knew, I, and we knew, which makes the two hour, I'm the, I'm the d- damage control watch officer. And I hear the report of a fire and I don't run the fuck down there or get somebody down there immediately. And so my point to you is they knew and they still behaved in this manner. Point well taken. I think I can slide in here and salvage my point, which was that we've all been in situations where we had to inspect things like weapons storage areas, blah, 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 health, comfort, safety, health, comfort, safety. I mean, even even a second lieutenant recognizes what the, the preconditions are for a spontaneous combustion. Number one. Number two, according to the 8010 manual, there's a whole flow chart in there. Their expectation is CO2 extinguisher on a fire within 30 seconds of detection. That was the standard uh, according to the Navy at that time. And then from there, it's just another increment of what you're applying. But they should have had fire extinguisher on the fire source within 30 seconds according to their standards. 87.5% of the fire stations on that fucking ship were inoperable, were in some deficient mode. Which means you mitigate that with with handheld fire, uh, portable fire extinguishers like you used to have on the in the hangar decks with the helicopters. I mean, there's ways of mitigating that. I do believe if you were to read the 8010 manual, it would talk about that. I looked like it said that. I just skimmed the thing. But yeah, I understand. No, there's that there's they, absolutely certainty a workaround, Timmy. Right. So we may yeah, not yeah. be able to do and this, and but and we're gonna have you. this, right? Right. right. And, and you're and and, this, and according to the com serve pack, whatever. This is what you must do. This was part of the memorandum of understanding when you pulled your ship in and started and commenced your overhaul, That, according to that manual. But uh, it's pretty obvious that these people were remotely familiar with that damn thing, which makes you wonder what they were familiar with. Because I, I can't believe that that kind of fundamental blocking and tackling type stuff, 
something that you would expect a second lieutenant platoon commander to recognize instantly is not recognized by the professionals. That I, doesn't make sense. I had a friend call me last night who listened, uh, and he was absolutely disturbed. And he said, Mac, you, know, you want to know what they're doing? And he's, uh, he works in a factory now, and he works with the Teamsters. He said, you know what happens if you're a Teamster and in this factory and you're caught on your cell phone? I said, what? He said, you're fired. You're fired. You're yep. fired. Yep. I said, no shit. He said, he said, yeah. He said, because all things bad that happen in an industrial area can be traced back to the cell phone. He said, I will guarantee you what these people were doing that morning. They were fucking around on their cell phones. They were watching YouTube. They were texting. They were emailing. They were doing all the, they were playing video games. He said, that's what the fuck they were doing. He said, there's no way. He said, you know, everybody who's ever set foot on a ship knows that what is the single worst thing that could happen aboard that ship? And that is fire. Two hours before a, a independent group of San Diego Fire Department firefighters begin to pour water on it on their own. It's not an organized effort. Two fucking hours. And so, and so to me, what you say is, is made worse by the fact that they, you know that. When you go into, the, into, for, in, into a maintenance period, you know that your job as ship's company is... Right to deal with all these people that are coming on, make sure you can fight a fire. That's number one, and it's painstaking, pain in the ass shit that you have to account for every day. Jeff, a um, couple things that jump out at you from from the articles you've read. Well, the uh, Taylor, like I said before, the main thing is the the uh, the confusion among the O six level commanders about uh, and which led to nothing, which led to. No, you know, decisive steps being taken. And the fact that over the years, that initiative that we saw at Pearl Harbor and we saw it at, like on the USS Forrestal when they had that accident there in uh, 65, I think it was, you know, or 66, that type of initiative has been reamed out, you know, uh, of. Uh, OK, hold on. Hold on. Let me let me jump in. If you haven't if you don't know what Jeff's talking about. The fire on the forest stall that what them affectionately became known as the fire stall. Okay, there's it's off the, the coast, forest. right? It there became forest fire, right? Yeah, it it became. Um, it, they're hooking up uh, jets to the bow catapults that are launching off the angled flight deck, and a fire breaks right. out. Right, the fire begins to engulf the flame, the, the the aircraft. Right, they're working to get the the pilots out of the fucking thing, right? And then the the fuel ignites, and there's one explosion, and then the ordnance explodes. After every explosion, all you see is is sailors. It'll make you cry. I swear to God, I watched yeah. it in my damage control orientation class aboard the Ranger that had its own big fire, right? And you're watching this shit from the cameras on the flight deck. And, and all you're seeing are, are, are guys in different colored shirts with blue trousers on running towards the fire. And when these explosions happen, you see them go flying in the air. And then they yeah. come running back again. And, and, and so that's what, that's what Jeff's alluding to right there. Right. right. Can I make one, one simple point? They were not wearing blue trousers. They were wearing dungarees. Sorry. That's cool. Hua? <laughs> yeah. 
And, and that and that tape is shown in boot camp. It's shown repeatedly all over the Navy constantly. So every every sailor's seen yeah. that tape. Yeah. It was, it was John McCain was sitting in his A4. Right. One of his uh, missiles ignited and hit hit a uh, an A6, which dropped its bombs or rolling around on the flight deck and started to explode. And uh, yeah, that. Uh, well, anyway, that yeah, that's what I was talking about. The instinctive. You brought it up. The worst thing that happened is a fire. Whether you're whether you're you know at sea or whether you're in port, that's the worst thing. And these guys, they, it seemed like, at least the Navy I remember, they were conditioned to go after that fire, you know, the way we would go after infiltrators. You know what I mean? They would you right away. You went. They practiced over and over and over again how to deal with fire because that's their biggest uh, threat. And it seemed like the, there was no sense of urgency. I mean, for two hours, nothing happens. What the fuck, man? Yeah, that's my my point of this is uh, the commands, though. You know, if, if that's if that's what you want, you want a robotic service that only takes action when they when when they're ordered by you know higher headquarters. You got it, and when you don't order them to do anything, they don't, and you lose a BHR. And as far as the cell phone stuff and the Teamsters, you know, I believe that. You know, it's like I see them these guys all the time now. A lot of times they don't even have formations. They just send out messages to everybody on, so they can read it on their phones. Be here at this time, you know. May have this type of gear. So you never see, like, lined up, you know, in a surly bunch of you know dudes in three ranks, you know, waiting to hear stuff. They're out there. They get stuff on their cell phones. It's it's not good. Well, let me tell you, and certainly not going to be confused with anything that's military either, right? Well, um, absolutely. You're right. Well, a couple thoughts. Uh, yeah, so apparently the vice CNO had a press conference where he, he talked to reporters. And uh, this is not going to surprise you. Navy leaders rebuffed assertions that the fire is indicative of larger problems in the service. Good God, Quote, man. Supporting data does not support or agree with the assertion that it's broadly systemic. Now, what he was talking was specifically about fire stuff, which I think is bullshit anyhow, but rebuffed assertions that fire is indicative of larger problems in the service. Okay, and then here's a money quote. Everybody make sure your coffee's down, right? You're seated in a firm place. The vice CNO says that he needs to highlight the imperative for unit leaders to speak with a strong and courageous voice about what they see. Hold on. That, that's sort of like creating the environment where people feel comfortable about telling the truth. Again, I got one for you, Vice CNO. How about we fire people or not promote them who are uncourageous about talking about what they see? He basically tells you that the entire United States Navy is afraid to call them as they see them. And as Jeff just said, I'm going to I'm going to slightly nightingale here. If you want a robotic service that only does what it's told, you got it. And the vice CNO absolutely says it's true. But. It's not a systemic issue that we need to worry about. For the and thing I to work. Close. Let me right. close. Okay. We're doomed. <laughs> I mean, 
are for the, doomed. If you're going to do carrot and stick, the carrot has to taste good, but the stick has to hurt. And if there is no stick, all you are is a carrot giver, then you, you get the Bonhammer shard burning up in, in, a, in peace in a, in, a, in a San Diego, for Christ's sake. And yeah. we, need, we need to highlight the imperative for unit leaders to speak with a strong and courageous voice. We went from, don't give up the ship. I have not yet begun to fight. I do not wish to be associated with a ship that does not sail fast, for I, inte I intend to take her in harm's way. Enemy fleet in sight. All ahead flank, left full rudder, prepare for torpedo attack. Two, we need our ship CEOs to speak up. <laughs> well, and you left one out of there, and I would interject in there to the uh, spirit of the sailors of the forestall, right? Yeah. And and that is that is shown as as Tim said, that's shown all over the place. You shit all over that, that courage, that selflessness, right? And um, I, I would tell you though, that and I'll go back to the Somerset, right? The commander of the Third Fleet's endorsement. Right, that that allows the commanding officer and the entire crew of the Somerset off the hook for that shit is the problem here. Right? We all know people at lower levels will do exactly what the fuck they're trained and told to do. Right? But when you have leaders that don't that that, that don't know their job, and that is true of the Somerset CO, fundamentally ignorant about his job on that fucking ship that directly contributed to the death of eight Marines and one sailor, and that fucking guy is let off the fucking hook by the CO of the Third Fleet. Right, the commanding, what do you call, what do you call him, Will? He's not the commanding general. What, what do we call him? He's a compact fleet. Yeah. Yeah, the head admiral of the Mr. Pacific Fleet. Pacific Fleet. Right. That guy lets him off the hook. So, so the result... We have a lack of resolve at the top of the military. And that's what I hope everybody sees in this, right? That, that it's, it's at the head level. It is not at the lower levels. They will do what we expect them to do, what we train them to do. They will act as young Americans have acted throughout history. But when you don't have standards, as Jeff said, when you don't even give them, get them information, when, when you don't see them, when you don't help them, when you don't impact their lives— you get what the fuck you get, right? And that is one sailor, right, sees haze in the upper or lower V, I can't remember which, right, on their way to a vending machine after their watch and just says fuck it and doesn't even report it. That's what you get, okay? And But again, the rot is at the, is at the executive level of the United States Navy, right? And again, channeling their inner Gary Thomas, right, we have to create an, an, another environment. Uh, it's to me, it's it's stunning, and it, and and now I have the image of the the Bonhammer shard where no water hits this thing, right for two hours, and then it's not even done by a crew member. No water, no A triple F, no fucking nothing, right? And and I, and here's what I want to hear out of the chief engineer or the damage control watch officer. 
Fire the AFFF. Well, we don't know if if I don't give a shit. Fire the fucker, right? That's all we got right now. I want to hear somebody explain explain what that is, Matt. It's the it's the firefighting foam agent aboard the ship. Okay, I want to hear somebody take some kind of action, even if it's fucking reckless, to save this ship. Okay, but what do you hear? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so, again, to overreact to the, the – and, and let me tell you, we're going to find way worse shit in the investigation, okay? Trust me, because that's the way this shit comes out. Um, this is the choreographed rolling out that the Navy did. They've had this uh, investigation done since the early spring. They just didn't know how to roll the fucking thing out because it's so horrific. So this is their charm offensive. Everybody's got their quotes, right? So now we're going to get the investigation at some point. And then we're going to start asking hard questions they're not, that they're not going to be able to do the choreography on. And it's going to get uglier. But the question is, right, the rot at the top of the United States Navy and their denial. There's no denial in their special operations community. There's no, no, there's no systemic problem in their special operations community either. Just ask them. They'll tell you. They'll investigate <laughs> themselves and they'll tell you, yeah, yeah, we don't have a cultural problem. All this, all this shit you're seeing, yeah, there's nothing to see here. And so, and, and now, layered on that lack of action, I have the, the video burned into my brain of the forest all fire and the courageous sailors in their dungarees, many of them, many of them who died doing it, running, right. right, to put out, you know, fires because they knew the threat that it posed to the ship. That that courage and selflessness is now, right, being echoed in history by this shit. And again, somebody needs to do something about the American Navy. The American Navy doesn't seem to be able to do it. So I have a question for everybody. You have the command, and Jeff alluded to it, the commanding officer of Expeditionary Strike Group 3, who comes down, who has no authority to take control of the Bonhomme Richard in port, and who assumes command of it, and is the first person to act in a proactive way. The commanding officer of the Bonhomme Richard, I don't even give a shit his name or who he is, is a helicopter pilot. He was the XO for a period of time and then became the CO. Is it time for us to do away with that model? Tim? I I don't believe there's any question about that, but that puts you in a very, very difficult position uh, with your carrier your aircraft carriers, which are traditionally commanded by uh, a brown shoe, a uh, you know, naval flyer. So I don't know how you get, I don't know how you get your, your reps in for your commander, uh, your carrier commanders, but based on our experience in the eighties, when we did a lot of this ship to shore stuff, I mean, that's all we did. We worked with a professional Gator Navy and a professional Gator Navy uh, would know how to turn on the aqueous fire suppression system that's in the lower V on over the overhead that's designed for exactly that. That, that. There was no question that everybody would have been able to figure at least that out. So I think, yes, you need to go back to putting naval officers who have prior command in these command positions and would help to leave them there for a good long time, too. There's no reason why you couldn't have a um, the executive officer be an aviator. Sure. But the person who is the primary commander of the ship and the custodian of the ship, the maintainer of the ship, the leader of the ship, ought to be a black shoe, right, Navy, United States Naval Surface Warfare Officer, um, in my opinion. 
right? You cannot. This is what a part-time job, right? At the what when you're an uh, you're an O five and O six. Now all of a sudden I'm going to learn how to lead a ship. Give me a fucking break, man. Jeff, thoughts on that? Yeah, normally I like always weigh against air wingers of any stripe, but uh, I have to tell you, um, I seen some really good ships captains who happen to be pilots. When I say pilot too, I mean. Like we had our Fibron commander. He's like the commander of the Navy side of a Mew. When you go out, he's, he's in command of all the ships. And even though the command relationships are different, you know, he's basically the co-commander along with the Mew commander of the uh, amphibious ready group. And this guy in uh, 1990, 91, um, he had the Navy cross as a helicopter pilot, search and rescue guy. And uh, he was a very good commander, you know, and he knew about the ships too. Even though, you know, he was uh, his felt the Marine commander was Colonel Dave Fight, who was another outstanding guy and uh, who's an infantry uh, officer. And they I don't think it was so much um, the, the, you know, being an aviator and being lackadaisical because you are an aviator. I think it's because uh, they're not, you know, I mean, they're, they're not. But I, there's a, there's differences in the pedigree of people who fly. If you're a, if you're a, a Navy helicopter pilot, you spend a lot of time on a big deck. You know, they're to you're you're part of the team of the ship. They're to rescue people who you know who who need you know rescue by air from uh, you know from things that happen either combat or you know or not. And so uh, I wouldn't go with the with the uh, with the uh, MOS thing, the military occupational specialty part of this thing against aviators. I would say this: we said it earlier, carrot and stick. You fire people who display shitty command uh you know behavior and you and you reward people like the guy you're talking about the esg guy who basically uh, apparently you know tripped well you know a couple of basically violated you know uh command relationships by going out and taking charge because it needed it and if he had been around earlier this thing might not have been uh, the ship might not have been lost so i say holding people accountable reward for good behavior punishment for bad behavior is the key to this thing well, yeah, William, I, William I, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm still buried by the words of the vice CNO that that the number two guy in the entire Navy says we need to highlight the imperative for unit leaders to speak with a strong and courageous voice about what they see. So he has basically said it is irrelevant what their background is. And what he also just told me is he needs to get rid of about three layers in the Navy. <laughs> Probably all the two stars, all the 06s and all the 05s, they just need to go because they don't speak with strong and courageous voices about what they see. You cannot be the CEO of anything if you don't speak with a strong and courageous voice. So while technically... In a lot of ways, I'm very sympathetic to your argument. Um, if the entire Navy needs to teach ship's captains how to be in charge, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but we're doomed. <laughs> we just saw just we just we just went through an investigation where eight Marines and a sailor were killed, and the commanding officer of the ship did not know what the fuck that, that he was doing. And he, he also did not speak with a strong and courageous voice. Right. Vice might be onto something. Well, and again, what I would say is, right, 
he he's learning how to be the commanding officer of a ship, right? In very short period of time, at the at the end of his career, or or the two thirds of the way through his career, and, and I I think maybe there was a day that that that, that worked. I think that day is gone. Now we've lost a $2 billion ship that was undergoing a quarter of a billion dollar right upgrade. And, and the CEO of the ship is incapable of what, even getting there, of organizing right the firefighting effort on his own ship, and somebody else does it. And so I don't know how many more of these events we need to take a look at before we say, you know what? We need people that are experts in ships, and this is their life. And so maybe that's an overreaction to a $2 billion ship burning and warping in San Diego and eight Marines and a sailor that are, um, that are, that are now dead because somebody didn't know what the fuck their job was. But I would, I, would, I would say somebody ought to take a look at that. Somebody ought to take a look at that. All right. Max, I wish someone in the Navy would overreact. And I don't care what they would do, but what the Navy has said about both of these things is, you know, we don't really have any systemic problems here. And besides the fact we all get along pretty well. <laughs> all right. Final thoughts today, Timmy, final thought. You know, you've got two areas where Navy commanders don't appear to be remotely familiar with the orders pertaining to exactly what they're supposed to be commanding. It's pretty bad when you let ship's captains get away for not knowing what they were supposed to know. Uh, I, I I could see where they might want to cut a huss on. Uh, no, I can't see that. That's bullshit. Uh, there's no excuse for it. The, the entire shore repair community was unaware of the directives of how to fight a shore-based fire that were written after we lost a submarine in exact same circumstances due to the exact same combination of mismanagement to the response. What are they paying attention to? It's not their fundamental duties. Something else is eating up all their time. I think I know what it is. I'd love to hear somebody else explain it to me because it's clearly not uh, a paying attention to their fundamentals of the job are not what's getting these people promoted and not what they feel they need to do to stay in. It's, 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 it's just like when I was at, at a pistol, a, a professional pistol guy out in Las Vegas, and we were teaching mostly a lot of cops. And I was appalled at how poorly cops were at hand, handling a pistol. And one cop said, look, the vast majority of us will never use this thing. This isn't what gets us promoted. Being a good shot with a pistol doesn't mean shit as far as my retaining and making promotion inside of my thing. That's why we don't pay attention to it. We never, we never expect to use it. And I guess Navy ship captains now never expect a ship fire. I, I don't know. It's just the weirdest damn set of circumstances that paints a very poor picture from the very top because that's where the rot lies, at the head. Jeffrey, final thought? Well, I think I pretty much uh, – I said everything good I'm going to say today. If I say anything else, it probably will be a degradation. So I stick with my earlier comments. <laughs> Wait. Are you okay? Are you are you are you are you okay? Is that a cry, is that a is that a cry for help? Like what the fuck? I don't I don't, I don't Mac. I don't want to say anything negative today. Oh, okay. No, I said a lot of good. Negative is good. I'm, I'm I just don't have anything to add other than just to repeat what I said. The stick has to hurt, and the carrot has to taste good. But it's more important that the stick hurts. Got you know, it. Got as, it. As Machiavelli said, it's better to be feared than loved. 
And if you're, you know, if you're in that business of uh, making sure you got a disciplined force, you're a stick man. You're, you're Admiral King. There you yeah, go. Admiral Rico, you know? Right. There you go. All right, Will, final thought? Yeah, uh, the Navy's trend line is alarming, and the Navy's reaction to the Navy's trend line is worse. Uh, I will, Nightingale, uh, Will's, half of Will's statement. The true crisis here is at the top of the United States Navy and the reaction to these debacles. One got excused, and the second one, you know, somebody just said there's nothing, to, there's no, there's no real problem here. This is an anomaly. That's something that's never happened in American military history, right? A capital ship of the United States Navy burns in port for five days, but there's there's no systemic problem here, right? It's all it's all an anomaly. Every time this happens, it's an anomaly, right? At some point, somebody and again, the Navy, in my opinion, needs to go into receivership, kind of like bankruptcy court. Right? It needs to be delivered to somebody else who will unfuck it and teach it what it is to be a branch of the American military and then give it back to the Navy and say, okay, now run this thing. Okay, now the, the final, and according to Will, the most popular segment of All Marine Radio is uh, what are you reading? Timmy, what are you reading? Well, I, uh, I, I will tell you the book I was reading last week, I don't recommend it on psychology, <laughs> military incompetence. It got kind of tedious and boring, so I surveyed it. And I moved on to something, and this is for Jeffro in particular, The Cornfield by David L. Wecker, who breaks down the Battle of Antietam, centering around the actions on the cornfield, which Jeff and I did not do justice to when we were doing the staff rides way back in the 1990s. But uh, this is an excellent, well-researched book that probably explains what happened to my great-great-grandfather, Reuter, who survived the cornfield um, because apparently he was detached uh, guarding artillery for most of the morning. Thank Praise be to, to Allah for that. But this is a great book. And I know Jeffro, once he sinks his teeth in it, is going to freak out because we spent a lot of time with Tino talking about this very battle. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would, if you can text me that guy's name and title. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing it right now, brother. Or better right yet, now. or better yet, just send him the book. <laughs> That's why, I, because of people like me, they invented the Kindle. Even though, just yeah, let me no, say, I could, I could probably send it to slander him. to say I'm a book thief. I am not a book thief. This we know. I'm a book borrower, but not a good return. I'm a great borrower, but I'm just weak on the return part. <laughs> there you go. There you go, Jeffrey. What about um, uh, what are you reading? I'm in between books. I'm doing the Vegas, look, the Vegas San Clemente shuffle here. Today I'm flying uh, back to Vegas. I'll probably fire up the Kindle and I'll probably just read the book Timmy just recommended. Yeah, just send it to you, man. Got it. All right. Got it. William, what are you reading? I just uh, I read a book uh, the last two days that I read a long time ago that you might have read. You ever read Ball Four by Jim Bowden? I did. Yeah. Yes. I read it. Yeah. I read it again in the last two days, and it's it's as funny now as it was when the first time I read it, probably in the seventies. It's uh, for people who don't know the guy pitched for the Yankees in the early mid sixties, and his arm went bad, and so he pitched for the Seattle Pilots, who played in Seattle for one year before they moved to Milwaukee and became the Brewers in nineteen sixty nine, and he wrote a book about the year. And it goes from anecdotes about what's happening to greater themes in baseball 
and it's it's just hilarious and it's it's some of it is even more hilarious now because it's just so bizarre to think that's what was happening in the United States and in baseball at the time. So uh, all I didn't realize he died. Of, something a pitcher wants to hear. <laughs> yeah, he died a few years ago. Uh, but in this book is a 50th anniversary edition of the original. So it uh, it's got about six extra, <coughs> six extra chapters in it. So oh, ball shit. Four, it's good. Yeah. I will tell you this. Uh, I can vividly remember my father's reaction to that. Right. And, uh, and Jeffrey will be sympathetic with this, right? It's like a, somebody in the mob, like singing about the mob, right? The <laughs> fact that somebody yeah. would reveal these secrets in a day and age where we didn't do that, you know, that most people didn't know that Mickey Mantle was, you know, had a, had a drinking problem, that we would talk right. about the, the womanizing and the drugs and the drinking, right, in public, right, was an act of um, right uh, treachery yeah. that cannot be overstated in the baseball community. And it it took uh, so that guy won, I think, three games in two different World Series. He might have won only two, but I think he won three games in '62 and '63, or '63 and '64. So he's in there with Mickey Mantle and and Roger Maris and all those guys. He did not get invited to the Yankees Old Timers Day. That's until 1998, and it was after his daughter had been killed in a car wreck, and one of his sons wrote sort of an op-ed letter in the New York Times, uh, basically saying that they should invite his father back to 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 uh, Old Timers Day, and that. You know, Yogi Berra would not go to Old Timers Day. Steinbrenner owned the Yankees. Right. And they, in the letter said, you should go out of your way to invite Yogi Berra. He was one of the all-time great Yankees. And uh, and they invited Bouton. And when he talks about it, going back to Old Timers Day, it's, I mean, it's really something. So it's a, it's a good book. It's it's funny, funny, funny stuff. And it, it's just weird. He's talking about race relations and just everything. So, uh, even if you're not interested in baseball, it's uh, it's a book worth reading. What made you? Well, first of all, Yogi Berra, right, uh, participated in the, in the Normandy invasion as a as a coxswain on one of the uh, landing craft that uh, ran between the landing ships and the beach that day. Yeah, I mean, Yogi Berra, one of the great Americans of all time. Um, what precipitated that, William? What precipitated what? Normandy. No, what precipitated you reading it? <laughs> reading it, you fucking well, I dope. Read it, I read it years ago. And I, I get like, I get like four or five emails every day with, uh, you know, cheap books on Kindle. Oh. And so I saw the thing, like 50th anniversary edition of Ball Four, and it was 99 cents. I said, you know, I, I should read that book again. Got so it. I did for a buck. Yeah. Got it. All right, boys. Well, first of all, thank you very much. What are you reading, Mac? Oh, <laughs> I'm I'm writing. I'm not reading, right? <laughs> I'm writing two books right now. I'm writing a children's book on. Uh, um, it's we, were, we asked what you were reading, not what you were writing. 
Well, I mean, I think I think life I think life we're not. I think you go through phases in life, right? Where you become a, you know, a consumer of literature, and then at some point when you develop intellectually to a spot, you begin to write. And so, um and I haven't got there yet, that's for sure. Well, you have company. You have company uh, here. <laughs> hey, I, listen, I, I did a good thing, though. I did something good what? last week, two weeks ago. <laughs> I forced up. my two stepsons to watch Goodfellas, right, because I never had seen it. And so then, the, then an hour later, they're out there at the pool, and they're teaching my grandson how to use the snorkel. And they're saying, you got to remember three things. Put your face in the water and blow the and blow the uh, any water you get in the, in the tube out and never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. <laughs> well, there, there you go. All right, on that note, on those words of wisdom, uh, we will bid you adieu. Boys, thank you very much for the visit today, and have a great week. You too, man. See you See guys. You. Yeah, bye. bye. <laughs> That'll do it on a I'm now nervous about saying what day of the week and which month it is. Yeah. Um I always enjoy my discussions with my friends. And it's pretty amazing when you can hear on a consistent basis. Uh, the audio and the video not syncing up, right? And we've heard this from, you know, the, we don't have a cultural problem in in our special operations community. You just keep seeing the same thing over and over and over again, but there is no real problem there, right? And now from the vice CNO of the Navy, yeah, there is no systemic problem here. You just keep seeing these leadership failures over and over and over again. That gives you some idea of how far up the problem is right when you can't look at yourself and say we've got a problem I don't even know what to say to you right what do you say to that person other than you're so out of touch with what the fuck you do it's pathetic so anyway on that note um, I'm Mike McNamara this is All Marine Radio thanks for listening today it's going to take me a couple minutes to turn this audio around and, uh, and put it out so don't touch that dial this program repeats itself momentarily
Have a great Thursday. And uh, I'm not sure if I'll do a program tomorrow. I might, depending on what happens in the news today. So if not, I will see you Monday. And as always, don't be afraid to change somebody's life. Stick your hand out. Uh, If you know somebody's dealing with significant trauma in their life, stick their hand out. Say, hey, I'd like to talk to you. And then call me on your fucking cell phone, man, and I'll help you out. So on that note, I'm out.